You are listening to the Twibbly Podcast, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Comedy podcast looking back at This Week in History. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podbean, or wherever you like to get your podcasts from. You can find us and or message us over on Facebook and Instagram using TWWWBLY. back to Twibbly, or this week was way better last year. My name is Bill with one L. With me, he'd rather die than give you control. It's Jeff McLarge, huge. Hey, hey, everybody. Yes, I would rather die than give you control. Dye my hair, dye a shirt. That's not what you mean, right? And then you gotta get that drum beat that goes, woo, 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 woo. <laughs> Yes, because we certainly don't mean the terminal way. No, no, no. Hey, so speaking of dying, I had a medical procedure, information redacted, uh, performed on me this this past week. I had to be put under anesthesia for the first time since, like, I was in second grade. I feel like there should be the trivia questions, like, so what did Bill have done? Let's just leave it here by saying... Here's looking up your old address. <laughs> yeah, the medical procedure. Well, I mean, I don't remember anything. I was I was unconscious with the anesthetic. My mom was like apocalyptic with everything, and she used to tell us these like horror stories about being knocked out with ether and stuff like that. Now, anesthesia has come like a real long way, right. even in the last couple of years. But in my pea brain mind, I had equated being knocked out with dying. I was like. Oh, this is what it's going to be like to die. It's just going to be like, click, and that's it. You're out. Yeah. And, of course, this led to, like, just a week full of anxiety leading up to it, right? Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're doing all their thing, and they're, they're sticking all the needles in my hand and stuff like that. And the anesthesiologist says, uh, all right, well, uh, whenever the, you know, the medicine starts to go in, your hand is going to feel a little warm. And then my hand started feeling warm. I was like, oh, we're doing this already, huh? And she's like, yep. I was thinking, you know, am I going to do this eyes open or eyes closed? And I closed my eyes. I just started, like, thinking about a favorite moment from a favorite concert, right? right? A couple of years ago, I went to see Marillion up in Canada, and they did this one song called Ocean Cloud, which I love and I had never seen live. And the screen behind them had, like, you know, just pictures of, like, ocean waves and stuff like that. And that was the last thought I had before I died. I was gonna say you sound pretty good for a dead guy. I didn't, yeah, I didn't die. They, but my, you know, they shut the lights out. The next thing that happened to me delighted and terrified me at the same time because this is how your buddy Bill's brain works. <laughs> okay. You've been on this anesthesia before, yeah. I have indeed. So it's like lights out, and it's like instantaneous. There's no dream time. There's no REM. It's like lights out, and then 45 minutes go by, and they're waking you up. So they're like. All right, Bill, wake up. All right, it's over. You're back in your room. And as I'm, like, coming to, I don't have Ocean Cloud by Marillion playing in my brain. I have the Michigan Rag by the Frog (laughs) from Warner Brothers. Like, as, as I'm waking up, yeah, I'm hearing... 
Everybody's doing the Michigan right. Bom, dom, slot the Michigan. Dom, dom, bom, the Michigan. Yeah. Well, if you're going to celebrate, you know, coming out of anesthesia, that's definitely the music that you want. That lovely ring. The last time I was put under that I remember, uh, I was about to go in for emergency open heart surgery. My blood pressure was all out of whack. I had had a ton of stuff in me that they were trying to use to keep me stable. And I was pretty sure I was about to die, just like you. I was not thinking of a favorite Marillion song. You were actually right, though. I was. I was about to die. As they're wheeling me in, the anesthesia, I'm crying. And like I say goodbye to my kids. And I'm like, I'm going to die. I'm never coming back. And as they're wheeling me in, the anesthesiologist, as he's putting the mask over my face to first put me out so that they can give me the stuff that's going to keep me out because i got to crack me open like a lobster. He goes, what a big goddamn baby you are. And I was like, what? (laughs) And then I fell asleep. And I was like, oh, I woke up and I was like, eh, oh, he's like feeling better. I'm like, I don't know. I think you called me a baby before I fell asleep. <laughs> it was really funny. <laughs> so that's my anesthesia memory. Uh, they told me I don't have to go back for another one for another five years. And I'm like, oh. because it was such a breeze, I'm like, hey, yeah, yeah, you can do it two or three. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> I'll come back next month. Yeah. How about that? That was cool. All right. All right. But enough about my uh, lower intestines. Let's get on to the show proper. But before we do the show proper, I have my always immensely popular and always well-received trivia question. Ah, yes. There are 206 bones in the human body. How many bones does a great white shark have? There are 206 bones in a human body. Yep. How many bones are in a great white shark after it eats a human being? (laughs) <laughs> that's not the question right no. let's see we're not counting teeth as bones right because teeth and bones are not the same right I have to think about this but I, I'll have the answer for you by the end of the show alright alright so this is the week beginning August the 23rd alright what do we have for the, our first day it's your turn to start isn't it it is my turn okay. so speaking of big ass animals yep. with lots of bones 1960 in Equatorial Guinea the world's largest frog species. Everybody loves the Michigan rag. <laughs> yeah. Well, if this was Michigan J Frog, yep. the dude that found him would need a forklift to move him around. Because this frog, uh, it's called the giant frog of Equatorial Guinea and Congo, uh, was caught weighing 3.3 kilograms, which, if I do my math correctly, is 7.27 pounds. Jesus. 7.27 pounds is a surprisingly large amount of frog. <laughs> that is a sh- surprisingly large frog i i just looked at like the picture there's like some kids holding it up it looks like it looks more like a small a small child than it does a large frog <laughs> doesn't it yeah it looks like they're holding up another kid yeah that's how big it is it looks like a three-year-old this is stevie and you know like all frogs frogs are omnivores although they tend to eat insects more than anything else friggin 7.27 pound frogs I can't even imagine what the tongue on that thing is pulling in to feed it. Oh, right, yeah. 7.25 pounds is a lot of frog. Keep it away from Kyle! Right. You know, it probably stopped eating flies when it was a tadpole. Oh, right, yeah. You know? Yeah, it's eating, like, birds and big <laughs> bass spiders and other, other giant monstrous animals from Equatorial Guinea. It was a tough one, too. You see blue jays. <laughs> the beauty part, though, is that if you are fancy frog legs, it's the frog leg that eats like a meal. <laughs> Yeah, it did have some muscular-ass legs on it. My friend had uh, a lot of unusual pets. The guy lived next door to me. He had an African bullfrog, and that thing was enormous. And if I'm going to guess, it probably weighed about two pounds. Holy cow, that thing was like a third of the size of this thing from New Guinea, right? Right. Holy cow. 
Yeah, I, I don't understand having pets like that. Like, what do you do with a pet two-pound frog? I just look at it and go, like, what do I do with you? I have to keep buying crickets. It just sat there. It didn't, like, go anywhere. It didn't do anything. Right. It just sat there and, like, then every once in a while you would put, like, like pinkies. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Pinkies yeah, yeah. in front of it. And it would just, like, move, like, a little bit. Kind of like Jabba the Hutt, really. Just like, uh, yeah. all right, I'll eat. And then that was it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I can I always imagine that, you know, you have one of those and your friends are over and they're like, what's your frog do? And he just sits there, plots against me, I think, and that's, <laughs> that's pretty much it. Does he jump around? No. Yeah. Does he swim? No, not really. <laughs> you know, does he croak? I haven't really heard that. He just sits there. Yeah. So I could put a plastic frog in there and you probably wouldn't know the difference for a few days, right? <laughs> probably not. Yeah, I mean, whatever. How How is that a pet? I don't know. Whenever it died, I actually asked him that. I was like, how do you know? Right. What makes you so sure? <laughs> yeah, it's, it stopped moving. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's get on to the next day. So uh, anybody that knows me personally has probably heard me talk something about this. August the 24th of 1853, the first potato chips are prepared by Chef George Crum at Moon's Lake House near Saratoga Springs, New York. The story goes that, you know, he was making French fries and one of his customers were like, oh, can you make these things any thinner? And he was like, oh, yeah, you son of a bitch. And like made these like paper thin French fries. And that's how potato chips were invented. That's the popular myth, and that's not exactly, like, what happened. So I'm picturing this in my mind and how you accidentally create a delicious snack treat out of spite. Yeah. <laughs> which, which, as far as myths go, I've heard worse of. Yeah, well, I mean, I think he just, like, you know, with, you know, peeling potatoes and it's like, hey, these little wafer-thin things, I can just throw these in the fryer later and see what happens. I, I like the myth. Don't get me wrong. I like the myth of the story. I like the whole, like, middle finger right thing but uh, uh, doing my research you know spoiling everything that's uh, probably not what happened uh, uh. now that was 1853 so as much as 50 years later in Lemonster, Massachusetts so not far from either one of us there was the very first potato chip distribution company so the, the the first potato chip was invented in 1853 you know there was just something you made at home uh, you could you didn't right. buy them in the store. So the first place to, you know, mass market potato chips was right here in Massachusetts, in Lemonster, Massachusetts. They were called the Lemonster Potato Chip Company, but they later changed their name oh. to Trisum, T-R-I-S-U-M. They are actually still in business, even though they have a, a pretty small distribution circle. And the reason why I know so much about this company is because that's my family's company. My cousins own that. Oh, hey, that's cool. Yeah. My- have you sampled some try some potato chips have i tried some yes i have they are uh, they're actually very very good potato chips oh. you can buy them online yeah cheap plug for my family yeah my grandfather antonio DeShano, he was the youngest of 12 and the oldest. yeah yeah well then there was no cable tv back then and the oldest brother jp DeShano, is the one that started the company so they were they're actually like on their fourth or fifth generation over there and meanwhile wow. meanwhile we're only on the second generation over here on this side of the family so and for those of you who are listening that aren't from massachusetts lemonster is spelled l-e-o oh yeah yeah <laughs> m-e-n-s-d-e-r leo minster but it's yeah it's pronounced lemonster yeah yeah massachusetts they just they just jettison vowels all over the place and what's interesting about their potato chips too is like if you have a look at the ingredients 
on a bag of potato chips. There's a lot going on over there. But my family's potato chip company, it's just potatoes, salt, and oil. That's it. There used to be a potato chip company here in New Hampshire called Granite State Potato Chips in Salem. Where you could go in and buy a bucket. You buy them by the bucket full. Like a four-pound bucket, which I could eat (laughs) in one day when we used to get them. Uh, I used to get fantastic heartburn, but you could go and get them. And they would, like, literally scoop them out of the bin into your bucket. Oh, wow, that's cool. It was really neat. Their advertising was fantastic. It was a picture of Dwight D. Eisenhower holding a bag of (laughs) state potato chips from, like, 1956. Oh, wow. That was the only advertising they had. They were not very busy, and they went out. Uh, uh, try some websites got like a picture of my cousin. That's about it. <laughs> oh, well, see, they should go see if they can get a celebrity endorsement too. Maybe they can find like Franklin Pierce or uh, George W. Bush to hold up a bag like potato chips. <laughs> All right, uh, let's get on to the twenty fifth. Ah, uh, okay, eighteen thirty five, the heyday of of people realizing they could tell phony baloney stories in the newspaper. And make things fun. So August 25th, 1835, the first of six articles published in the New York newspaper, The Sun, touting the discovery of life on the moon. And these articles sort of described like animals and towers and plants and specifically like half bat, half person moon creatures. Oh, that's the moon bats. That's where the moon bats come from. Oh, wow. It caused a bunch of controversy because the I'm saying this with air quotes. The purported astronomer who did this didn't really exist. (laughs) Big surprise there. When pushed to reveal who he was and where his observatory was, he says that he accidentally pointed his telescope at the sun and burned the observatory down, (laughs) taking all of his notes with him. So that's uh, not how the force works. That's not how it works. So that's that's what happened. And not to be outdone, this super duper pissed off Edgar Allan Poe, <laughs> who just a few weeks earlier had written his own sort of phony baloney story about life on the moon. But it didn't get anywhere near the traction that this other one did. <laughs> you bastards. They ripped me off. Plagiarize me. Yep. I, whenever I said, oh, that's the moon bats, you don't really hear that term too often anymore. But moon bats is like a slang against liberals. I, I guess that they think that liberals will, you know, believe anything, and therefore the, the, they were the suckers that fell for the moon bats. I, I guess that's where the, the term comes from. If you ever hear a liberal referred to as a moon bat, yeah, strong reference back to this story. It's funny because it seems like, you know, we think about this now and we're like, ha, I never would have fallen for that crap. Right. But, like, this is right around the time that Percival Lowell says, hey, you know, I'm looking at Mars and I can see these channels. It looks like there's people there that are trying to divert water to keep civilization alive. And that ran as a, as a theory for years and years and years because it couldn't be independently corroborated or disproven because of the way the optics were at the time. While he wasn't specifically trying to flummox the readers of scientific papers like, you know, um, this guy John Hirschfeld was. But you could see how people would be like, well, maybe it is real. Like, there's that Percival Lowell guy. He says Chanali or channels. So that must make it real. That's one thing that the internet has kind of ushered in is a large era of, of you know, skepticism. Yeah. But at the same time, <laughs> at the same time. Wait, the internet that we use? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, there's like this like 50-50 dichotomy where anything you put up like like that would be shot down in a second. And there's all these other like like really oddball conspiracy theories 
about, let's get topical for a second. Let's just talk about the COVID vaccines. Right. Where, you know, just the stories that were going on about them. Like, you know, early on, whenever I got mine, I had like just gotten my second shot. And this dude that I know was like saying, oh, I'm not getting it. I saw a video where like people were sticking magnets to the injection site. And I was like, all right, you know, that's a magic trick, right? I could stick a penny to my forehead. Right. So he goes, yeah, but it wasn't sticking anywhere else, just on the injection site. I was like, dude, you can do anything. It's a, like I said, it's a magic trick. Do you know that guy actually messaged me whenever, like, like later on that night, asking me if I tried the magnets? <laughs> magnets, how do they work? I was like, I go, yeah, it didn't work. I did pull a quarter of them from behind my nephew's ear. He loved it. <laughs> now, if I could just get the kid to come over every day, I'll never have to buy coffee again. <laughs> I was reading about the Great Moon Hoax, and I was thinking, like, how difficult it must have been for Snopes to disprove this one, <laughs> you know? Like, a prehistoric Snopes, you know, before there was, like, a... How do we say this isn't true? Like, we don't have the same sort of, apparently, telescope that this potential doctor that may not exist actually has. This is humbug! But you're a bugbear! <laughs> Balderdash! I'm flummoxed by your silliness. <laughs> And I shall, I shall say my, my mantra on such things, if you have to lie to make your point, then you don't have a point. Right. All right. Moving on to the 26th, August the 26th, 1939. Seems a little odd for the year, but hear me out. Uh, 1939, the first televised Major League Baseball game. Oh, wow. 39? Yeah, exactly. I don't know who, I don't know who watched it, right. <laughs> but it was televised. Yeah. yeah. Watched in the White House, and it was watched uh, in the laboratory where Philco was manufacturing the first televisions. Exactly. The guy who, like, invented the television and his sister. Probably the Dumont Network was the one who carried it, and all of their customers getting commercials for Dumont TVs after that. Yeah, so it was a doubleheader. Oh, my God. Imagine that. The first, the first baseball game is the doubleheader. <laughs> what the? Hey, uh, which game is this? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> what inning are we in? I don't know. 15 second, so, I'm not sure. So it was a doubleheader between the Cincinnati Reds on a black and white television, the Cincinnati Reds and the Brooklyn <laughs> and the Brooklyn Dodgers. It was shown on NBC's affiliate W2XBS of New York City. It must have looked like open ass. It must have been like a game show called What the Hell Is This? What the hell am I watching? Yeah. So like, who's at bat? I don't know. Who's pitching? No idea. Who's on first? Yes. I don't know. Third um, base. But like, but like, which team's in the outfield? No idea. Everybody's gray with a dark colored hat on. You're like, <laughs> I have no idea. How about announcers to tell us what's going on? Now we haven't figured out that we need those. So it's, no, you just, have to listen. it's just a baseball You have to game. listen to that part oh. on the radio, yeah. You're right, right, yeah. Contextless sports. It must have been maddening right. yep. for people. I, I, well, I'm going to guess, though, that like I'm thinking like a doubleheader now. A, baseball, a modern baseball game goes on for about three hours. But that's because yeah. there's like so many commercials and this, that, and the other. As a matter of fact, I just read a statistic while I was doing the research for this. Out of a, a regular baseball game, do you know how much comes down to like how many actual like action minutes? Yeah, it's, it's something kooky. It's like... 13 actual minutes of anything I think going I, I on. I think yeah. I read like 18. Yeah, 18 minutes yeah. Of, of stuff going on during a three-hour baseball game, and the rest is all like right. commercials and the... Well, I, at least now on ba televised baseball, you know, commercials are kept to like inning changeovers and stuff. They don't interrupt play. Right. 
you know, or go between batters. They they'll constantly announce things like, "Hey, it's the try some potato chips <laughs> bat of the day," and let's let's not forget it's the polar seltzer run of the day. And don't forget, I stub my toe and I've got the Band Aid brand Band Aid toe of the day. And the- yeah, and not just that, but they have like you know, this uh, Major League Baseball's been around for over a hundred years, so they have a hundred years worth of stats. That they could just rattle off, too, yeah. Well, you know, back in 1883, when they adopted the New York rules, and Mustache G. Phineas Strongman <laughs> like, was throwing the first left-handed pitch, like, I don't know, I don't know. Shut up! <laughs> shut shut up and just tell me what's going on now! Alright, let's get on to the 27th. August 27th, 413 BC, as, as we like to say on this show, all the way back to the very beginning. During the Peloponnesian War, an eclipse of the moon, not populated by moon bats, uh, frightens the Athenians into delaying the movement of their forces from Syracuse. This is, I guess, during a siege for 27 days. This delay gives an advantage to the Syracusans, who then defeat the entire Athenian fleet and army. Boy, if it scared the Athenians, think about how the moon bats felt. <laughs> I guess the moral of the story is, you know, don't be superstitious about the moon going behind the sun or the sun going behind the moon. I'm not sure which eclipse it was. It must have been an eclipse of the moon, right? It's a so- lunar eclipse, so the Earth passes in between the sun and the moon, yeah. Yeah, it gets, uh, it gets a shadow across it. It gets the Earth's shadow yeah. across it, yeah. Right, so I'm sure that... The Athenians were like, well, that's it. That's a sign. We're all going to die. <laughs> and, and then they did. Kind of so that's it. And then they, <laughs> that worked out well. Because I, I studied magic a lot growing up. I, I still love watching magic and stuff like that. I don't remember which war it was, but there's this thing called the magic trick that saved the world. Where there's this illusion where you have this like uh, almost like a suitcase or a, a toolbox shaped thing with a handle on it. And they brought this toolbox over to their the generals of their opposing army. And they put it down and they said, lift it. So the guys couldn't lift it. And then like all these other guys couldn't lift it. And then they brought over people from their army and they're like, we have magic powers. And then they lifted the case and then put it down. And then the other army couldn't lift it. It's a magic trick, but it fooled the other army. They're like, yep. All right, you guys win. We don't want to mess with you. You're obviously super powered and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, it's a magic trick that prevented a war. Yeah. And there's also the lunar eclipse that ended a war. Yeah. <laughs> Moving on to August the 28th. August the 28th, 1962, our recording artists, Tony Sheridan and the Beat Brothers, record a song called Ya Ya, parts one and two. Yes. And the Beat Brothers are also colloquially known as the Beatles. That's right. This is in 62 when they were still in Hamburg, Germany, and they they were signed on to do this, to be session musicians for Tony Sheridan, Mm -hmm. because they had played with him before in some of their clubs, I guess. They did four songs, so Lennon McCartney sang back up on one, and they played guitar and bass, and then there's another one where the whole band, and this is the time when Pete Best and Stu Sutcliffe were in the band as well. Right. Were they the Beatles at that point, or were they the, still the the, the Quarrymen? They were known as the Beatles then, but they were called, <laughs> the record company put them out as Tony Sheridan and the Beat Brothers, because Beatles, I guess, sounds like slang German, Beatles, which means penis. <laughs> So, oh, so well, wait. So the beetle, the, the beetle sounds like Beatles, which is slang for penis in Germany. Penis. Oh, that's wicked yeah, funny. That's, that's what I read, and so they called them the Beat Brothers instead. And I guess the two main Beat Brothers were John Lennon and Paul McCartney. You can actually hear John Lennon sing background on the song "Yeah Yeah" parts one and two. And it's a perfectly good song. It sounds like the end of 1950s, sort of right before the transition over. Yeah, I listened to it before the show, and it's, it sounds like surf rock with like a lot of organ, like rock organ in it, yeah. Yeah, it definitely has that Mellotron sound, and it's really kind of a neat song. And 
ultimately Tony Sheridan didn't go anywhere. One of the songs that that John and um and and Paul I guess wrote for this record, they ended up redoing later as a as a Beatles song, and it was the Beatles that ended up. Yeah, the Beatles. Uh, I got a good feeling about those guys. <laughs> All right, so what do we got for the 29th? August 29th, 1997. Netflix is founded by Mark Randolph and Reed Hastings in Scotts Valley, California as an online DVD rental business. I don't know how many of you remember. It was groundbreaking at the time because you could go online to netflix.com and build a queue of DVDs that they would mail to you for your membership cost. And it was only relatively recently in the history of the internet that Netflix became a streaming service that pretty much abandoned DVDs. I think once they killed off Blockbuster and realized that people were more interested in just downloading stuff and the infrastructure for the internet made it possible to download stuff in high quality, that they started to abandon the DVD model. No, they still have it. My friend still does that, yeah. There's a lot more stuff available on in their DVD catalog than there is on their streaming. That was the case when their streaming started. I remember talking to my brother who's like, hey, you have Netflix? I'm like, no. I just go to the video store to rent DVDs. And he goes, no, nah, like for streaming. I'm like, no. And he goes, well, it's good because if you want Caddyshack, you can get the DVD of Caddyshack. But if you want to stream Caddyshack, you can stream Caddyshack 2. I was like, Caddyshack 2 sucks. And he goes, yeah. So that's what you'll find on Netflix. Over time, that's evolved so that there's a lot more catalog that's available of better films. But And it is ultimately what murdered Blockbuster. Yes. Blockbuster actually had the opportunity to buy Netflix very early on. And Blockbuster was like, no, 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 no. Who's going to want to go online and order a DVD when they can come to our store and touch things that people without gloves on have touched. Well, they were also like, you know, banking on the instant gratification of going down, renting a movie and watching it that night. And then Netflix was like, you know, that sounds like a good idea. (laughs) I can make my instant gratification even more instant. Ha ha. Well, Netflix is like, it's definitely set the trend of proving the model that a streaming service could be successful. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then ultimately it was copied by Hulu and I don't know. There's been like 35 different versions of Paramount, CBS, HBO since then. Now, like every single cable channel, including but not limited to QVC and the Spanish channel, have streaming services that you can spend $10 a month to have access to. I still have Netflix. I have no idea how much it costs every month. I think it's like $15 or $16 now. Yeah. Or something yep. like that. I don't know. It's, it's part of my cable package. And so I'm going to have to reno- renegotiate my contract with them coming up in November. And I don't even know if uh, whenever it comes up, if I'll even keep it. Because I honestly don't watch a lot of Netflix. Although they're original shows, they've had a few of them that I really like. What I end up watching the most on Netflix is, let's see what's on Netflix. And it's just ro- rolling titles for an hour and 45 minutes. And then I go, I'm going to go read a book. Yeah. I just, it's too much. It's, it's like an overabundance of choice. And my right. brain just isn't wired to pick from that. The, you know? the thing I end up watching on Netflix is, let's see what Hulu has. <laughs> I do the same thing there, except I'm like, why do I still keep this service? There's nothing on here I like. Yeah, same thing with Amazon Prime and the others, too. It's I'll yeah. spend way longer looking for a movie than it takes to watch a movie. I will say this about Netflix. Out of the three that we just mentioned, Prime, Netflix, and Hulu, Netflix has the best like scrolling, you know, it's a, it's the easiest one to navigate. The other ones are a little more... Uh, yes, I agree. I yeah. don't like that Amazon Prime like constantly tries Horrible. to get you to buy things. So it's like, yeah, I want to watch Diamonds Are Forever. I've seen that movie. It's like, at $3.99, why, why is it showing me this? I don't want to buy it. I just want to watch it. Show me the ones I can watch for free. Let me know what's um, free, and then shut up. The problem I have with Netflix is like, can't pause. 
and contemplate watching anything unless you want it, the movie to start in the background. Oh, yeah. And it's like, shut up. I'm trying to think or I'm trying to talk to my kids. And it's playing the trailer for some damn movie. Uh, I don't know if this movie exists on Netflix, but moving on to the celebrity birthdays, August the 23rd, star of one of our collectively favorite movies, Caveman, Shelley Long, who... You may or may not have remembered. I think she was on Cheers or something like that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Shelley Long, born August 23rd in 1949. God love you, wow. Shelley Long. You're, yeah, yeah. Yeah, she's 72 now. She was like just getting popular in parts right at the end of the 1970s. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say late 70s. I would say more early 80s. Early 80s I think, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, she was in, she was yeah, in night, and night and night, night shift. shift. Yep. Yeah, Ron Howard's first movie. And then she sort of parlayed that into some TV work on Cheers and made a whole bunch of movies later with like she did a couple of like buddy comedy movies with Bette Midler and she did Beverly Hills Troop and Yeah. and some other stuff. She was in The Money with Tom, Tom Hanks. Yep. And she was a perfect Carol Brady in those uh, Brady Bunch movies Brady too. Re- yeah. Yes. So, hey, happy birthday Shelley Long. Uh, yep. I'll always remember you from Caveman, though. Yeah, Tala. 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 Uh, she's still relatively active, too. She just, uh, I guess, it, it looks like it was a Lifetime movie, but that still work, you know, uh, as recently as like three years ago. So, yeah, good for her. All right, moving on, 24th. August 24th, 1957, English comedian and writer Stephen Fry is born. Now, you may not recognize his name. If you've seen, like, Black Adder or you've seen Jeeves and Wooster, or you've seen V for Vendetta, then you know who Stephen Fry is because he's in all those things. V for Vendetta, he was the, the guy that you suspected was Guy Fox, but wasn't yes. Guy Fox, who made yeah. the eggs in a blankie. In uh, Blackadder, he played Lord Malchett in like Blackadder's two through, and then in Blackadder four, he was Field Marshal, the dumbest Field Marshal ever. It was great. Mm-hmm. He did a lot of work with with uh, Hugh Laurie. That yeah. was his sort of partner in crime there. They had uh, L- uh, Laurie and Fry. They had a show together. My introduction to him was the very first episode of The Young Ones that I ever saw, an uh, episode called Bambi, Bambi, where him and Hugh Laurie were both on the panel of a game show. Yeah. Yes, they they were the snobs yep. on uh, University Challenge. Yeah, right? his name was Lord Snot. He was kind of a badass, too. Like, he wasn't a small guy. He was a big dude. Nope. Well, I shouldn't say was because he's still alive. Um, He's a big dude. And if you look at his nose, it's not all facing the same direction. And that's because he was a boxer. Yeah. Yeah. So not only is he a big dude, he'll whip your ass. Happy birthday, Stephen Fry. All right. Moving on to the 25th. One of the best vocals in heavy metal. August 25th of 1951. Rob Halford, lead vocalist of Judas Priest. Yeah, the, my favorite band when I was 13 and a half to 14 and three quarters years old. <laughs> so I was, from when I was 13 and a half to 13 and, 13 and two thirds. Yes, when uh, they were at the height of the satanic panic, my mom took a Judas Priest cassette tape away from me. Was it Screaming, was screaming for, for Vengeance? All right. Which prompted me sitting down with her and listening to it with her and talking about it, and then she gave it back. They had the song Devil's Child on that one. I believe. You're the devil. Yep. Yep. I remember Judas Priest being like way, way popular with their British Steel album. Yeah. They they were actually one of the bands like whenever I was in high school, you know, I liked a lot of like punk and post punk stuff and uh, like that. And this was the heavy metal '80s, and Judas Priest was one of the bands that the guys in the shop would torture me with. Yes. No nah, man, no nah, man, you gotta listen to Judas Priest and. <laughs> 
And I heading out to the highway. Yeah. Oh my God, heading out to the highway is freaking hilarious. I went back and I was listening to Judas Priest because I do like them. But I'm listening to the song "Heading Out to the Highway." I want you to go and listen to that song whenever you get a chance. It is hilariously simplistic. Yes. There's like a riff at the beginning of the song, and then the rest of the song is like all open chords, not even like rhythmic. It's just like on the one beat, it's like. Ah, 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 ah. That's the whole song. Yeah. And the drums yeah, yeah. are just a simple 4-4 four, four beat. It's like, why are you guys so popular? It's so funny. Like, I go back now and listen to them, and, I'm, and I remember them being, like, in my mind, contemporaries with Iron Maiden. Yeah. So, so Oh, Iron Maiden um, opened up for them on their Peace of Mind album. Yeah. Right, right. Listening to, you know, Peace of Mind and hearing, like, Where Eagles Dare and some of the other songs in that one that are really complicated and historical or literary yeah. and then you listen to like judas priest records and they're just like i want to go hot they're just not yeah they're just not they're just super dumb but they're really really fun to listen to they're like acdc dumb yeah you know <laughs> and you can't tell the rob halford story without telling the rob halford story rob halford you know being in a heavy metal band but also being a very openly gay individual. He would dress up in these, like, you know, leather daddy outfits, like <laughs> the the gauntlets with the spikes and yeah, the, uh, like the... Crisscross leather, like... Uh, like, yeah, like the bandolier belts there. Yeah. And, yeah, all this, like, kind of, like, leather daddy bondage stuff. Everybody in heavy metal started dressing like that. Even Bruce Dickinson from Iron Maiden had, the, like, yeah. the, the leather gauntlets leather and all gauntlets. that. And then later on, Halford was like, yeah, that's that's because I'm gay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, but Halford left Judas Priest for a while in, like, the late 90s, I guess, and went off to do some other solo stuff and... Judas Priest, like, you know, Iron Maiden without Bruce Dickinson, plunged along. They brought in another singer named uh, Ripper Owens, based on, I guess, a contest, and hired him. And they put out a couple records with him, toured with him, too, and he sounds a lot like Rob Halford. Yeah, that's because he used to be in a Rob, uh, he used to be in a Judas Priest cover band. Cover band. Yeah. He used to be in a Judas Priest cover band. So they, they did Judas Priest songs, and it sounded a lot like Judas Priest, and they still toured and did stadium shows, and everybody was like, yeah, Ripper Owens. And then a few years later, Rob Halford came back, and they were like, See you later, Ripper Owens. And then Ripper who? That was the end of yeah. that. I guess Halford was actually pretty cool with him when, when he came back, and they they did some dates together, and then Ripper Owens went off to, to be in a band called, my, with a fantastic name, Charred Walls of the Damned. Wow. Moving on to the 26th. August 26, 1980. Macaulay Culkin, the actor who got super popular in Home Alone, as well as a couple of other John Hughes movies like... Home Alone uh, 2. <laughs> Home Alone, Home Alone Two, Lost in New York, and My Girl, uh, among others, and uh, The Good Son. He he, he did a horror movie called The Good yeah, Son. He did yeah, called The Good Son, right? And he was in Richie Rich, which didn't really do anything for anybody. But he was in that, and he was in Uncle Buck. He he, he was really really popular for a while, and then he sort of faded away for a bit. Did an adult part. He did a Party Monster. Yeah. Uh, about Michael Alec. I mean, yep. that was supposed to be like Macaulay Culkin's like comeback movie, but Seth Green walked away with that movie. And he didn't do anything really after that. And then he went off to be somebody that the press worried about a lot. Mm -hmm. So he looked uh, really skinny and gaunt and unshaven and found himself in an art rock band called Pizza Underground, where they did pizza-themed Velvet Underground covers in New York City. Amazing, yeah. It's amazing. And then he disappeared for a while again, and then he's come back, and he's like, he shows up on like YouTube channels so there's a youtube channel that i watch called red letter media so he shows up there every now and then to, to watch terrible movies with the hosts of the shows that they do at red letter media 
which is really funny to listen to him talk about like his career a little bit and then to watch him sort of pick apart movies with other people. He's probably got this like whole thing like, I'm still making money from the first thing I ever did. I don't give a hell what you think about me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah he said that. He used to have a podcast called Bunny Ears, which was really good. And he brought that up. He's like, yeah, I, I still get residuals that mean I'll never have to work. You know, so I can do stuff like this or travel or whatever. So that's what I do. And if I want to take a job, I go get one, but I don't really want one. Well, hey, you know what? More power to you. I wish I'd been at home alone. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Moving on to the 27th, August 27th of 1953. The guitar player for the Canadian trio Rush, man by the name of Alex Lifeson. Alex Lifeson is a fantastic guitarist. He is. And he's he's the worst musician in Rush. Yeah, by like a he's the he's the one of the three that people like. Yeah, the the other two are just so amazing that it it kind of like makes him look like a bad guitarist. But he's not a bad guitarist by anybody's freaking definition. I'm quite sure he could play "Heading Out to the Highway" by (laughs) Judas Priest without a problem. (laughs) Yes, I'm sure he could. Um, But like again, he's overshadowed by Neil Peart and I think by Geddy Lee because of Geddy Lee's singing and multiple instrument playing and he's like just the guitar guy but he's a fantastic guitar player yeah, uh, he does a lot more than just play guitar he's got all sorts of like foot pedals to do uh oh, keyboard man. sounds and stuff like that too oh. uh if you ever get a chance it's on netflix uh from time to time there's a documentary of rush called beyond the lighted stage which i totally recommend watching it's a great I, great i've seen yeah. that and my favorite piece of trivia for that, and I've seen this in person, one of the first concerts I've ever seen was Rush. By Amazing Happenstance, I actually got to see them in the front row. Alex Lyson, Rush in general, just used to decorate the stage with a bunch of like weird stuff. But Alex Lyson had this like two by four with a bunch of Barbie dolls like nailed to it that he put <laughs> at the front of the stage. And it was always there. I remember seeing it. It was like right in front of me. And the reason why he did that was, he goes, if I back up and I stand back here and I look at the Barbie dolls from this angle, it makes it look like this girls in the audience. <laughs> That's a great story. I saw them live too, and it was it was a it was a great show. Yeah, you know, for a band whose lyrics are notoriously cerebral and serious, they were very funny. They they all had a great sense of humor. Yep. All right. Next up. Oh, wait. We got one more for the 27th. Oh. If, if, since we're talking, we talked about Shelley Long and, and, and our love of the movie Caveman. Oh, yeah. The other female star from that movie, Barbara Bach, was also born on the 27th of she August. She was married to Ringo Starr. She's married to Ringo Still married to Ringo Starr. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. yeah. Yep. Uh, Lana from Caveman. Uh, Zug Zug Lana. Yep. Tukalunda Lana. Okay. So moving on to the 28th, who do we have? August 28th, 1965. Crossover country artist Shania Twain, who for a very short time was at the top of the country charts, at the top of the pop charts, and was going, going, Bill is cackling now, was going places. So, Bill, please tell us about your Shania Twain story. Oh, so your friend Bill is a bit of a jerk, but like I'm not a jerk anywhere else but within the confines of my own brain. I think of some amazingly sinister things. So there is a family of extremely, to the point of almost being dangerously religious people, and the three children all work at the supermarket up the street from me. They're all homeschooled. They're all kind of like awkward and antisocial, you know, kind of people. Somebody I used to work with knew that family, and they told me this story. Right. So the mother had seen this woman that she thought would be 
perfect for her older son. She convinced the older son to you know, write to this woman and say how perfect they would be together. They should get married, blah, 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 blah. And he did. And he did. Yes. And he did. And he kept doing. And he kept writing this woman letters until he got a cease and desist letter from her lawyer. He was, oh. yeah, the mother had seen Shania Twain on television <laughs> and thought that that would be the perfect girl for her son, right? Now, all three of them still work at this supermarket, and I still see the oldest one every time I go grocery shopping, and here's where I'm a jerk in my own mind. Because every time I see him, I just want to go, I bet he feels like a moron. <laughs> I mean, that's crazy. It's a sad story, but ooh, can you get a hoot out of it? You can get a hoot. I don't know. With the, like the way her career trajectory is right now, she's probably rethinking that. Get a steady job. Yeah. I say that with all all love for Shania Twain. I'm pretty sure she still does a lot of work on the country chart. She just doesn't cross over anymore. <laughs> she's still the one. And wrapping up the birthdays, August 29th, 1956, seminal punk rock icon, Gigi Allen. <laughs> Another gem from the granite state yeah so Gigi was born in lancaster new hampshire yeah for Gigi allen for those who are not aware he was not famous he was infamous he would do some really really unbelievably disgusting things on stage up to and including taking a shit and rolling around in it and throwing it at people yeah. and sticking hot dogs up his cuisine and starting fights with the audience and smashing the whole place to pieces. There's a lot to be said for the weirdness that is Gigi Allen, and I love BS rock and rollers who get submerged in their own character yep. to the point where they can't escape anymore, and he was kind of that guy. He's almost a template for it, yeah. He started making sort of punk rock records, proto-punk records in the late 1970s, uh, mid-1970s, I guess, and, and if you listen to stuff from his first couple of cheapo little records that he put out, they sound really good, but you can hear that there's an edge to them that was that just wasn't like in the Ramones. The Ramones didn't swear, yeah. and his stuff is like, yeah, everything is super great, f*** you! And like, no, you can't do that on a record that's gonna be on the radio, Gigi! Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I was at the gym, and I had like, you know, Spotify on, like a, a Ramones you know, radio kind of a thing. And I hear this song that was like super cool, super catchy, 1970s punk feel to it. And the song was called Don't Talk To Me. I was like, what is this? This is really cool. And I look and it was like, that's Gigi Allen? Because the Gigi Allen I know is like, now I want to go f*** myself and stuff like that. There's definitely a big span between Don't Talk To Me and Automatic, that's the other song from that same record, and like stuff like Outlaw Scum f*** or <laughs> Kill Everything I f***. That word features a lot in all of his music. Now, Gigi became a victim of his own character when uh, he overdosed on heroin and uh, died at a party after a show that devolved into a riot in New York City. Probably didn't die of diphtheria the way he was constantly rolling around in his own fecal matter. Yeah, he's a he's a mess. Yeah. But there was a room, there was an entire room at the Museum of Death in in Hollywood, California, dedicated to Gigi Allen. I, I, like an entire wing of the museum was for him. Yeah. yeah. When I worked at the radio station in college, that was my first real experience getting to know who Gigi Allen was, and it's almost like novelty music. If you were trying to explain the worst aspects of sort of rock and roll to people, that's kind of who you could show. I can see your program director at the radio station now just like putting big stickers on the uh, on the records that say, do not play this. This song is... Da, 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 ba, da, da, da. A 
worst song ever. All right, Jeff. Worst song ever this week. What's our contendo? What do we got? All right. So digging back into the uh, the golden age of people who have careers on TV and are popular with 13 to 15-year-old girls being given multiple record contracts so that they can unleash their terrifyingly bad vocals onto the world. I have, of course, speaking of David Cassidy's younger brother, Sean, who was a star of a TV show called The Hardy Boys Mysteries. Right, yeah. Now, David Cassidy was the heartthrob from the Partridge family. Partridge family. And could sing. And yes, His yeah. brother, Sean. Well, Sean's only his half-brother, so that probably... The genetics were probably from one family member, not the other, right? Yeah. yeah. The half that could sing is not in him. <laughs> it's not part of him. So I had a the Sean Cassidy's second record, which I can't remember the title of, but it was a, like him in a, like a white sweater on the cover that my dad colored in the teeth to look like his face had been punched in. Yeah, uh, the first album was like a close-up of his face, and that's the one with like the Duron run on it, which is a big single. And yes. then the second album was the one that you had. There was like the, they just it was basically the same picture, but they just pulled the camera back a little bit. That one was called "Born Late." So terrible record. But his career, like anybody else, like this, like Leif Garrett, or you know, for, for until he put out a live record, Peter Frampton. Even the record sales for subsequent records got lower and lower and lower as he got less and less popular because his fan base hit puberty and aged out. Right. Mm-hmm. So in 1980, he wanted to reinvigorate his career as a recording artist and hooked up with my favorite producer from the 70s, Todd Rundgren. Oh, yeah. Put out a terrible record (laughs) of covers of unusual songs, I guess, for the time called Wasp. And it features songs like Rebel Rebel, you know, the David Bowie song, and Shake Me, Wake Me, and It's My Life by the, the Animals, and a bunch of songs written by Todd Rundgren and Utopia, specific for this record. An astonishingly awful cover of Ian Hunter's Once Bitten, Twice Shy. Oh, oh now people are going to know that song. Once Bitten, Twice Shy was covered and made famous by Great White. Like a, right. maybe like 1988, I think, or something like that. The song was everywhere. As a matter of fact, their follow-up, album they basically moved in that direction like they made a song that sounded like that because it was such a big hit for them yeah now the song yeah. was originally performed by Martha Hoople which is fronted by Ian Hunter right Ian Hunter yep so let's play the clip this is oh my god let's just I can't even describe it let's just play this enthusiasm to it this sounds like a child being punished you know what your punishment is you're gonna sing karaoke tonight and and we're gonna pick the song for you and we're gonna pick once bitten twice shy he definitely sounds like he's singing this one and he's trying to encode like a please rescue me interpol (laughs) something in there i don't know if it's the tonality of it or the weird like that it's he's off time yep as he sings it but it's like he's encoding a message to be rescued. And it's so freaking awful. And every song on this album is terrible. But this this song is especially bad. Here's a sentence I thought I'd never speak out loud. It makes you long for great white. <laughs> yeah. It, actually, it, it does. And, f- you know, for Mata Hoople, whose greatest hits record has two songs on yeah, it. Yeah, that one and uh, All the Young Dudes. All the Young which, Dudes, which yeah. Which has the, uh, the caveat of actually being written by David Bowie, so... 
And the only part that anybody remembers from that song is the part where David Bowie sings the chorus. Right, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, it's kind of like the, the Rockwell uh, Michael Jackson. Anyway. Movie, yeah. Yes, so, the, exactly like that, yes. Yeah, Sean Cassidy, I remember he was actually fairly popular. I remember my friend's sisters having his records and stuff like that. But I didn't even know about this Wasp album. And poor them, too, because only like a couple of years later, the heavy metal band Wasp came out. So like, if you actually Google Wasp album, that's what comes up. It would have been funny if Wasp covered Sean Cassidy on their first record. And that's funny, too. Like, you were bringing it up to me at the pre-show talking about our friend Sean Cassidy over here. If you look up the YouTube video for What's Bitten Twice Shy, the comment section is, like, just solid gold. It's really, really funny. Totally worth going to read. Some of the comments include, oh, hell no. (laughs) (laughs) The guitar is the only redeeming part of this song, and that even sucks. When I heard Sean Cassidy did a cover of Ian Hunter's original, I was so excited that I might discover some gem that no one ever plays. Now I know why no one ever plays it. Are you f***ing up a great song? Everything is right here for you. You just have to not suck. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's gold. Uh, the, don't listen to the song because yeah. it's awful. But definitely go and... Mute it and read the comment sections. This actually shows up apparently on a Greatest Hits album. And the whole Wasp record is the last time he did any music. It didn't It didn't char, and his record company's like, yep, see ya. And he, that was the end of him. A Greatest Hits album, and this is on it. Yeah. Which just goes to show you how many hits he actually had. Right, right. Not enough to fill an album. But you know what there is enough of? There's enough... Oh, yeah. How many bones does it take to fill in a shark? My trivia question at the beginning of the show, young Jeff was how many bones are there in a great white shark? There are zero bones in a great white shark, Bill, because they are cartilaginous. You got my swerve question. Yes. I did, yes. A a great white shark, as well as all other sharks, uh, have no bones. They are completely made up of cartilage. And I'm pretty sure I watch enough nature documentaries that I should get royalties from uh, (laughs) David Attenborough. Yeah, so much like your nose and your ears, they are made up of, those are also made up of cartilage. That's like a great white shark, which is a disturbing piece of, like, trivia because your nose and your ears actually never stop growing. Like, if you ever see an old man, they always have, like, a huge nose and huge ears. It's because cartilage doesn't stop growing. So think about that. As long as a shark stays alive, it continues to grow. That is terrifying. I think reptiles are like that, too. And it's not because of cartilage in the reptiles because they have bones. But they have the weird, this sort of weird metabolism that allows them to just continuously grow to pretty much unlimited until gravity squashes them, I guess. <laughs> All right, but that is going to wrap up our show for this week. We will see you back here in seven days. Say goodnight, Jeff. Goodnight, Jeff. Bye. Goodnight, everybody. Bye, guys. A special thanks to James Costa for our theme music. Find us or message us on Facebook or Instagram at Twibly or T-W-W-W-B-L-Y. Subscribe if you haven't already. And tell your friends, because friends don't let friends listen to those other podcasts.